This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. I think we go through most of our waking lives, at least, at sort of only a percentage of our true selves, even if we're with the people that we love. There's some things that you don't say or you can't do. There's something about sleep and about dreaming that you can even surprise yourself by how you you are. Hello, I'm Emily Berry, editor of the Poetry Review, and today I'm going to be talking to Rachel Long, whose poems Red Hoover and excerpts from the sequence A Lineage of Wigs appeared in the summer 2020 issue of the magazine. Rachel is the author of My Darling from the Lions, her debut poetry collection published last summer by Picador and shortlisted for the Forward Prize for Best First Collection and the Costa Prize. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Rachel. It's really great to be talking to you. I think I've been trying to get you to send me some poems for quite a few years, so I was really excited to have the chance to publish these ones. And I really loved My Darling from the Lions, such a rich debut. Sort of read it as a kind of coming of age tale, which is one of my favourite genres. Very dark in places, but full of wit and lightness. So I was hoping you could start us off by reading Red Hoover. Thank you, Emily. Yes, I can. I can read Red Hoover. Red Hoover. He was ridiculously good looking. He was even Nigerian, though mum flits between this being a good thing in people and the worst. I pulled his photo up on the internet, showed her. She decided on the spot his Nigerianness was a good thing. It was easy to pull his photo up on the internet because he was an actor. I'd met him in a theatre. He'd just been awarded a £3,000 cheque for being a Nigerian actor. It was a very hot summer. I wore a black play suit belonging to my younger sister but carried a blazer for a look that said serious play. He offered to buy me a drink. Of course, I said I'd prefer to buy my own, and when he insisted, I said, okay, like it was quite inconvenient for me to agree. When our drinks were on the bar and glistening in the velvet heat, he handed the barman his cheque. Ha ha ha, said the barman. Ha ha ha, I said. So, the ridiculously good-looking Nigerian had jokes. On my lunch break, I found a clean bench to call him from. We were awkward. I wanted him to ask me out. Why wasn't he asking me out? Mum began asking after him. Where's that good-looking Nigerian? Don't tell me you've ruined it already. The second time, I spread out on my bed, swung my legs up the wall, cold and good for my nerves. It was a short call because someone was knocking at his door. Okay, I said, like it was of no inconvenience whatsoever. I slid my legs back down the wall. A week later, I was standing in his living room, wearing my coat, or it was over my arm, my shoes still on. Either we were just about to go out, or I'd just arrived and he hadn't yet said, here, let me take your coat, or please take off your shoes. He was running all over the house, upstairs, then down, zooming around. He was running a bath, then letting the water out only to fill it back up. He ducked into a cupboard and yanked a hoover, a red hoover. He began hoovering everywhere. 
He even hoovered the ceiling. He just walked up the wall and as he did, looked over his shoulder at me on the floor and said, this won't take long, I just have to. When I told mom, she shook her head, laughed, half lemon, half sugar. He's crazy, she shrugged. God's showing you it won't work out because he's all over the place. Shame, that good looking man. Nigerian, she sighed, always into something. I'd still look him up on the internet sometimes, just to keep up to date with his plays, the BBC dramas. Then I stopped. For years I didn't think of him. Okay, perhaps, but in a loose and smirking way, playful, no serious pining. What was there to pine, really? Then, in bed one night, watching an adaptation on my laptop, the ridiculously good-looking Nigerian walks across the screen. His name escapes my mouth, half sigh, half whistle. I say it like, damn, I say it like, man, where have you been? He has a few lines. Then he's stabbed on a street I recognise, having danced down a long time ago. Long before I met him at that theatre, with his cheque folded into his pocket. I remember our two awkward phone calls and him hoovering his ceiling and I laugh into my pillow as he bleeds out. One of the things I love about that poem is how real it feels, despite the fact that some of the things that are happening in it, namely the hoovering of the ceiling, are quite fantastical. And this is something that I see happening throughout your book, this sort of weaving together of the real and the surreal but even to call it surreal doesn't feel quite right because it doesn't feel surreal when you're reading it it feels normal phoebe walker in the tls wrote in a review long skillfully captures how material and non-material worlds draw strength and structure from each other so it's like there's no hierarchy between the sort of mysterious and the real i just was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about this poem and how you set out to create this kind of world I'm glad that comes across. I love what you said, that it doesn't sound surreal, but the material and the immaterial have no hierarchy. I grew up in a house in which the material and the immaterial, actually, they do have a hierarchy. Actually, the immaterial is the boss. (laughs) My mom is a very spiritual woman. She lives her daily life, and I mean from, like, waking up, eating breakfast, kind of governed by dreams, by messages from other places, the non-worldly. I grew up in a house in which if you had had a dream on any given night as a child, I was to go and tell my mom what I dreamt because that would have been a message from somewhere else and a warning or a prophecy. I don't know. So no, because I ran away from a long time. I was never writing about any of that because it was a source of kind of shame I suppose but then when I started to realize the poetic potential of blurring the material and the immaterial I started to lean into it more it does mean that you can't just have a good night's sleep and then a fun dream and that be it it's always something else and it's quite heavy the writing out of all of that heaviness did help to lighten it I suppose yeah I was going to ask you about dreams, actually. You made this radio programme for Radio 4 called A Manual for Dreaming Women. I'm really fascinated by dreams and I try and use them a lot in my own work. 
And I feel like they can be sort of a bit unfairly maligned. I suppose it's like what you were saying about your upbringing, that there's this sort of prejudice against the non-material world. And if you're exploring that, there's something a bit wacky about it. And this kind of cliche of, oh, it's really boring to hear someone talk about their dreams. I've never understood that because I find it absolutely fascinating. I mean, yes, some people do talk about them boringly, but I'd just be really interested to hear a bit more about how that works. Well, I was always fascinated by dreams because I kind of had to, but it's like most things or some things for some people growing up, you kind of run away from them and then you come back to exactly the same place, either mentally or physically. My editor at Picador, um, I invited her on the show, Kish Wijaratna, and she said when you said how some people perceive dreams to be wacky, she used a great word, she said, yeah, they're kind of perceived to be woo-woo, that new age 70s, it's still kind of in the imagination, like it still kind of holds that, I think, culturally. Oh, for my blurb, for my book, I kept on putting, it's about this and it's about this and it's about this and it's about dreams. It kept on being edited out <laughs> of the blurb. And I, and I was like, but Kisha is about dreams. And Kisha was like, I know Rich, it's about dreams, but to kind of sell a book at least, let's maybe not put the dreams in because it does have this woo-woo. Yeah, that's how people think of them, which made me laugh. So I had her on the on Manual for Dream and Women radio show as well to sort of talk about that, to talk about why dreams even from her perspective as a commission editor, why they don't even sell. And so the cultural ideas around dreams. You also said about when people don't find other people's dreams fascinating unless they feature in them, which I think is really sad because it means you're only ever interested in yourself. I think they're wonderful things because they can give us an insight into who we really are. I can see why some people don't think, particularly in late capitalism, why they have any worth or why they're worth talking about because it's like, do dreams make money? No, they don't. Can they help you make money? No, they can't. Actually, they probably can if you do believe, like my mum does, that they're messages. They can probably tell you in metaphor where your pot of gold does lie or what you should do to go and get it. But I think we go through most of our waking lives, at least, at sort of only a percentage of our true selves, even if we're with the people that we love. There's some things that you don't say or you can't do. There's something about sleep and about dreaming that you can even surprise yourself by how you you are. I sound woo-woo now. But I, um, I think they're very serious very beautiful things I love that they can be poems when you take the frame of the dream off of the dream it is a poem because dreams like poems are driven by image they don't often happen linearly but they are events and I think some of my favorite poems are majorly image driven they are events all by themselves they're also like universes all to themselves you know Caroline Bird says something really beautiful. I had her also on the radio show. But she says, dream people don't know they're dream people. So don't mention that they are in the poem. The dream people think they're real people. Something like that. I'm messing up her quote. But that was wonderful as well. Because sometimes when people do write dreams, they write it as a dream. So they don't properly take the frame off of the dream. And then she's just saying, well, you're telling those people that they're not real. And that's... Maybe sometimes where the poem doesn't work as well as it could, you're saying, oh, isn't it strange that the sky's polka dot? But if you just presented the sky's polka dot like the dream does, it makes the poem alive. I think there's something about dreams, something else I wanted to sort of pick up on in your poems, where 
there's sort of things are not one thing or another. So, for example, in apples, there's a description of a kind of a splitting of the speaker. So one half of her catches a train and the other misses it. And she's wearing her favourite outfit, a jumper with no knickers, the perfect hot cold combo, which made me think back to Red Hoover, where you've got the character wearing a play suit and a blazer. We live in this world where everything is hugely polarised as everyone's always saying and yet the way in which we experience life is not like that we occupy paradoxical positions and in dreams those things just exist without any difficulty you know there can be an egg that also happens to be your mother and you don't like ask any questions about that it's just it is that's fine (laughs) I suppose the question is do you think that poetry is a space in which you can explore these things without having to pin them down in a way. I do think the poem is a good space for multiplicity. I think when I'm not inside of the page and when I'm kind of, well, when we could walk around more freely, I think I'm received differently in different places. I don't know if I do it like truly consciously on purpose on the page or whether they do just come out sometimes in a multiplicited way because I often feel like that so depending on what space I'm in or who I'm speaking to in one space I won't be what somebody expects and in another in my life that happens and so I don't know if it's any mistake why it then maybe happens on the page. I feel like your poems sort of resist following certain trajectories that you might expect so that's interesting to sort of hear you say that that's sort of how you feel in the world. For example, they might touch on like instances of trauma, but they then sort of swerve away in an unexpected direction. Like I'm thinking of poem Helena, in which a woman is recounting being raped to her friends. And it's a disturbing poem, but for me, it doesn't end up being a poem about a rape. It ends up being a poem about friendship. And I felt like these swerves sometimes happen through humour. So I was interested to know how you feel about the role of humour in your work and if that's something you're conscious of do I know how funny I am Emily (laughs) no and I didn't think I didn't think that the book did have much humor is that something that other people have commented on or am I completely mad saying it's really funny and actually it's a very serious book no so other people have said it as well in terms of humor I had to be really careful that I didn't put too many really sad poems next to each other or not even sad but like I didn't want to put really heavy poems kind of all in a row because if I was reading it I would be like please stop just like getting punched in the face continuously there would probably be a a punch that you stop feeling it anymore and you just let it happen kind of thing I don't know I think maybe again if we were sitting in a pub and I was telling you like a sad story then I would probably also laugh a lot whilst telling it I sound like a psychopath but I think you have to so particularly with Helena so that is to use Sharon Old's apparently personal but it's definitely kind of how we navigated things like that because what else could we do you don't have any power so really you're only the only thing you can do is tell your mates tell it a little bit funny tell it on a slant and then go and have a shower well I think that's a both very poignant and in some ways restorative aspect of the book there's quite a sort of emphasis on sisterhood literal sisterhood in terms of like a blood sister but then like sisterhood between women friends and then a sort of just wider sisterhood of women women of color and I felt like that was like a sort of reclaiming of something these experiences that a lot of women have whether they're like 
really direct violence or just the sort of cultural violence of experiencing being a woman in a body that's noticed in various different ways. There's all of that, but then there's the joy of sharing and the sort of togetherness, I suppose, of getting through all that despite its burden on our lives. I'm going to ask you later on to read from your sequence, The Lineage of Wigs, in which the figure of the mother is very strong. It feels like a sort of honouring of the mother. I hesitate to say your mother because obviously these are poems, they're not autobiography. I wondered whether this sense of a lineage, whether it's like your direct family or your four mothers and fathers in a more sort of abstract sense or your cultural lineage, how that feeds into your work and are you kind of conscious of paying tribute in some way? Does poetry have that? as one of its roles. I do think that the book is in part about honouring my mother until only sort of now that I'm living in post-publication, I'm a bit like, I was too generous. So as you saw the final, like, oh my gosh, actually there's a whole side, which may be the next book. But I think, yes, honour is important. That is a cultural thing that is jumped into you. And maybe perhaps I... Even in saying that, I think what I've just realised is culturally you're taught to honour your mother, honour your elders, but sometimes that honour can be actually maybe not the honest, most honest thing. Or there's another side, well, I don't know what dishonour, I suppose, is the opposite, but what's all in between that? What's the bridge between honour and dishonour that is maybe most true to what the relationship is? Interesting when you're writing in reference to a real person or I was thinking of the poem Holiday Album in which the mother won't be in a single photograph and yet through these poems you've kind of created your own series of photos of her. I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about how the sequence developed and I'm always interested in sequences because it's like when you have an idea about you want to do something and you have you imagine one thing but then when it ends it's actually something completely different and I wondered if that had that trajectory or if it was like you had the idea and it all ended up exactly as you planned or what nothing ever works out (laughs) how I plan on the page or in life (laughs) sometimes that can be a good thing I think about a year before I was reading and was completely blown away and moved by Salima Hill's Jutland I read and read and read that book and so that was still very much in me while I was writing a lineage of wigs. I wanted it to be a sequence, not only because of Salima, but also because my mother and her line, her lineage that I was writing about or into, she's not really sure about it. And so my versions of who was or growing up, a lot of her stories are really, they're short, they're tiny, they're, they feel like a massively incomplete or she'll say one thing and then it will be contradicted. What I felt like that I got with these snapshots, these flashes of the story, but nothing more around it. And that's why I think a sequence as a form really suited that. And also in length. So there are a lot of those poems that make up that sequence. Not all, but most are really short And my mum would often talk to her sisters. She's got six sisters, some here, some in the States and in West Africa and that 
part of the world, but she would be on the phone to them. I remember when I was little and there were international calling cards. You had to go and get the cards, use the little coins, scratch off the back and then type that number in before you dialed the international. I miss those. But my mom would send my dad to go and get her son to go so she could speak to her sisters like on Saturday evenings or whatever. And he would get his car and go to the local shop. And the local shop was a dishonest place. They would sell my dad sort of a 20 pound international calling card but there would only be like five pounds on it and so my mum would be on the phone to her and then suddenly it would cut and she would like shout in because she thought she had sort of three hours and really they've only had sort of 15 minutes this used to happen so often when she was having these conversations with her sisters who are all older than her and oftentimes it would be about the family it would be about trying to get to something who fell out of so-and-so in 1969 or whatever but they would suddenly cut and so I wanted the poems to reflect that in some way as well I can totally see that because there are these like little kind of three or four line sections to the poem to sort of um move on to a slightly different topic I I wanted to ask you about titles the title of the collection is biblical from Psalm 35 Lord how long wilt thou look on rescue my soul from their destructions my darling from the lions and I don't have a lot of biblical knowledge, so it wasn't a reference I immediately knew, but I love it as a title and I love it even more knowing the full quote. And given that it's biblical, it's which one sometimes associates with austere imagery. I love how sort of decadent it sounds as a phrase. So yeah, I was just wondering if it took you a while to come to the title or was it one of those things where it just came to you and you were like, that's the title. And just about titling in general, because I feel like This is an aspect of craft that doesn't really get talked about that much. Some people, I think, maybe see titles as more like a sort of label, so it's less key. Other people, it's very much like in a significant part of the poem's outfit. I'm glad that you said that about this title, about my darling from the lines. It did take me, I don't know, what's a while, what's a while when you're writing a book. But it had, I think, in different iterations of the collection over sort of four, five years. It did have different titles, but then again, it didn't have all of the poems that it had in. So it sort of changed and morphed. I think maybe one of the first titles when I was like, I think this is a collection and and I titled it then. Then it was called Poundland Barbie. And there were no Barbie poems even at that point. So it was kind of interesting to me then, like years later, to then remember that originally something that was almost looked sort of like this book, or like the girl version of it, right? The grown-up version of it was called Poundland Barbie. And then it was Seven Candles. So then I think it started reflecting the religious upbringing that I had. I don't even like to think about in juxtaposition because I think even when I was taken to church, like sometimes when you're in a really religious and like you said, an austere place, some of the things, the internal, some of the things that you're thinking about and going through your head are like, I think I'd just make on purpose because everything around me, at least physically, was really austere. So I would have like wild fantasies where I'd go off in my own head and do lots of other wild things that you wouldn't absolutely be allowed to do like in the physical space. So then it started to lean towards seven candles. And then my darling from the lines, I think, so my mum, if you have a, like a bad dream, she'll tell you like, oh, you should read this or you should read that. So I've grown up around certain psalms as well there would be almost like quotes I suppose or something that your mum says or will direct you to I just loved it I snagged on my darling from 
the lions. And then I thought, actually, I think that does get to so much of what I'm trying to explore in the book about the soul and what that even is, what this most essential you is and whether it is at harm and by what, what are the forces that are perhaps trying to harm or come against you. That's kind of where that that title came from. But titles more widely, like I think about this so much. Titles are really, really hard. I think of them like doors into the poem that they shouldn't give away too much or like little ajar doors that there's a kind of room, the poem's the room and then you peek in and you're like, oh, I want to go in there. Like I want a title to be like a really interesting ajar door. Oh, that makes me think of Mary Rufel in one of her essays. She'd never had a tattoo and she'd reached the stage of her life where she would never get one now, but she'd always thought if she did get one, it would be a little ajar door that just seems like perfect tattoo for a poet. It does. I love that. I love it. As also a poet with terrible tattoos, there's like so little poetry in the terrible tattoos I got in my in my youth. So I love that. I wish I was Mary Rufo and I had thought about an ajar door. I didn't. I also think of tights like little outfits as well. I think you said that. But I don't, if you think about it, it's that kind of thing like don't do back and legs. Don't do arms and it's and cleavage. <laughs> I think of them like that. Like, oh, is your title not that a woman should not dress in any particular way and you can do arms, legs, whatever you, what the hell you want to do. But just in terms of, in a, a fun way, I suppose, of are you walking into that place like almost naked? Do you want the title to give away that much that early? And you might, but let it be purposeful, you know? In the same way that there's these supposed rules about, you know, if you're going to do the makeup, you're going to big on the eyes and <laughs> downplay the lips or whatever. So that people are like, don't have a really long title if the poem itself is really flamboyant. But then why the hell should you do that? Mm. You, if you have whatever excessive title you want or have a really austere title if the poem is really austere. I mean, in general, titles tend to be on the less flamboyant side. I feel like people are nervous to kind of go all out with a title. I always think it's kind of nice if they do. I'm not saying that My Darling from the Lions is like, wildly flamboyant but it feels like a bit more of here I am I'm a title like check me out <laughs> is that a cultural change has that shifted did titles used to be more flamboyant and then did they become as we talk about dresses little black dresses short it works that kind of title was there like a cultural shift that's a good question I, I wonder if maybe there has been and maybe we're getting into a phase where people are ready for the bigger title again I think we should just do a whole show on titles that would be great. Titles are like relegated to the sort of accessories drawer, but they're actually something much more significant. Another great thing about that title is the way that once it's taken out of that context of the psalm, you can kind of pass it differently. So in, in the psalm, it's like rescue my darling from the lions. But without that bit, then you could also be talking about my darling who has come from the lions. Do you think having had that religiousness in your background fed into your writing in any way I mean I always regret that I haven't had more of a sort of grounding in the bible because it's like the language is so amazing and for poets it's such a rich space to be running around in as it were I do think that there in terms of the language the language in in the bible and lots of other religious texts as well 
is incredible it's poetry like the and the songs specifically and maybe yeah so no mistake I think that that it is titled after a psalm because they are the poem bit of the of the bible they're the songs that were meant to be accompanied by the harp I think it says so yes I think in terms of of language and being kind of sitting there in church growing up and even being quite frustrated being in that space but all of that language is going into you somehow so even if you're only half listening what it becomes is almost the background and so I owe a lot to that sort of background sound prayer as well and the use of repetition particularly in like an evangelical church there's a certain rhythm and repetition to kind of call on God to do this call on God to do this call on God to do this and most things will be said three times if you want something say it three times if there's probably a whole massive amount of personal research into like the what I do and how I write and the links that that probably has to sitting in a church as a child and what the effects of being exposed to that language, the patterns of it, the rhythms, the pitch as well. In terms of sort of how you got into writing your sort of trajectory as a poet, were you someone who wrote from a young age or did you kind of come to it later in life? Was there like a kind of moment where you were like, this is it, this is what I want to really focus on? I always loved writing because I always loved reading. I often didn't want to go and play out when I was little. I just wanted to go sit in my room and read my book. And if like, the little neighbourhood kids knock for me, I'd pretend I was sick or something just so I could finish my book and I'd go outside. So I was definitely a bedroom kid. I wasn't writing poetry even way up until my, yeah, my first degree. I was still writing prose badly, actually. Um, so it wasn't until after that, after I graduated and then I came back to London and then got involved in poetry workshops because I missed the workshop space from university and I was like oh my god what is it like I obviously I knew what poetry was I'd had to study it but not I had never done so with any real joy and so there was a certain scene that was happening there and I remember a specific workshop with Jean Binterbreeze which was run by Apples and Snakes and it was in Deptford and I remember going to that workshop Jean Binterbreeze is an incredible dub poet and she just falls into the poem as she's, uh, she's speaking, which I suppose is almost, now I'm thinking about it, is very church-like as well, that sort of speaking straight in a conversation and then how that will go into prayer or how that will go into a prophecy. or a, So that's quite interesting. I love speech in poems. I love direct speech specifically rather than reported as well because the things that people say are sometimes really poetic without the meaning to be or kind of wanting them to be it's really hard to then ignore the person who's speaking when they are speaking somebody actually speaks then you've the, the attention is directed to them I think it makes the poem active and present and heard the reviewer said of the book, the women loom large and articulate and why the men are mostly off stage. And I remember laughing and I was like, oh, there's definitely a guy writing this. The fact that you even noticed, because I didn't. I was like, are there no men in this? And then I kind of looked and I was like, 
I mean, my dad's there, kind of, somewhere. And then I realised, yeah, I massively have. Women are looming large and articulate. Again, I didn't do it on purpose, but I have been thinking more and more about coming from a, like a fiercely matriarchal home and how women's voices, and one woman's in particular, that's how the thing's going to happen. What she says goes. So I'm attuned, in a way, to the voices of women particularly and always have been. So I can't pretend that that was like a political or really conscious decision in the work. But it doesn't have to be a conscious thing for it to be political, like it inevitably is in a society where even now the majority of like films, it will all just be men and there'll be a few women in the background or you see a film poster and it's like five men and one woman or something. And you're like, hello, we are half the world, like more than half the world, and it's still an issue. I mean, that's inevitably just a really refreshing aspect of the book. What is it about having those voices in there? It's just, it brings it to life, I suppose. And it becomes a, a chorus of different voices as well as something from one individual. I really like that, a chorus. And what you said also about women and women together. There is a distinct power and a strength in speaking out, but also in and to oneself and also together. I feel like that comes through also in the, the kind of foregrounding of the mother's presence in um, a lineage of wigs. The portrait is occasionally kind of teasing, but it's ultimately very loving. And I really like that about it because so often poetry is coming at things from a, an angle of difficulty. And it can be a lot easier, actually, for, at least in my experience, to write about difficult things than to write about something that's just loving and affectionate. With that in mind, I was going to ask you if you could read from that sequence maybe the section Mum's Snake that's a simple title that's a little black dress of a title this poem yeah I was like what could I possibly call it because I feel that there's so much in it it's simple but it's it's mysterious that like you don't know what's going to come and then well we'll find out in the reading <laughs> I have to stop laughing because it's like it's not a poem that you can laugh through or maybe it is humour right Mum's Snake Firstly, mum wouldn't like that I've called it her snake. It wasn't my snake, it was a snake she put on me. Every time mum tells it, she rubs the back of her hand like a penny. She rubs the red-brown back of her hand. I had to shave it down to this. Not a hair, she says. For years, she rubs the back of her hand. Hair is a crowning glory. A source not only of beauty but power. Remember Samson, it can be taken, buried in the woods at night. Everything you came into this world with, all you were to achieve, the love you were meant for, trodden, rotting under the earth. Don't let any of your aunties touch your hair at the party. If one of them even reaches out for you, run, come and find me. Lord, deliver me. My enemies wage war against me. You don't have to believe me. It will take an incredible leap of faith. My sister put a snake, a huge one, the kind that swallows lambs. What's that sort called? A python, yeah, or an anaconda maybe, but worse because it didn't belong to this realm. It wasn't of the physical, you see. She put one of those on top of my head. 
I could feel it moving. The migraines, my God, they were cosmic. I couldn't stand the weight of it. I had to get it off. I couldn't get it off. I was back and forth from the church, sometimes three times a day, before work, after it, once you were in bed. The elders tried everything. The things I had to do, I cannot say. Mum's American sister, the one whose name will not be said in our house, the betrayal too great, ecstatic, dancing on stage, ecstatic. At last, one old prophet from Nigeria heard about me, said he'd seen something like this long ago. He said, let me speak to her. I spoke to him. God bless him. He said, take clippers. The snake is using your hair like the grass. Cut the grass. He will be exposed. Had I gone to the doctors, of course they would have said I was crazy. Can you imagine? Excuse me, Dr. Manguana, I can feel a snake on my head, a heavy snake, unless I shave my head. You'd have spent your childhood visiting me in the Maudsley. So I took the clippers, gave them to cousin Reginald and said, take them. My husband won't understand, not being of our land, take them, help me. Mum's orb of a fro lies on the red and gold carpet. The clippers hum in Reginald's hand long after he's pressed off, off with her hair. Mum's American sister, the one whose name will not be said in our house, the betrayal too great, enraged, screaming into the mirror, enraged. Mum's bedroom, half chapel, half boudoir, it's a wig shop, wigs hang from the bedposts, top corners of the mirror, tight curly wigs, boob length wigs, red and black pom-poms, Jesus, unadorned by frame or glass tacked to the wall, above where mum will later lay her clean shaven head to pray till her knees and elbows are sore. Thank you very much. I feel like there's a sort of fairy tale and folktale quality to some of your poems, not just the kind of innocence, but also the darkness you get in fairy tales. Sexual awakening, which is a violent awakening. I wanted to ask you if you think there is something about entering that kind of symbolic realm that makes certain types of storytelling easier, maybe, or more effective or more powerful. Yes, I think I do. That's something that I'm going to think about for a very long time now, really. But right now, the best that I can do right now is, I suspect it has something to do also with the realm of the dream. I suppose going back to the beginning and how you begun this with the material and the immaterial space, how one thing presented is not necessarily the thing in its entirety, it can also be another thing. I suppose what I'm thinking I'm asking myself right now, I think I'm asking, is the fairy tale a dream space? But I think maybe with, with an actual fairy tale, the symbols are more neat, maybe. I suppose I wonder if that's where the writing comes in, like you've got the dream and you've got the writing and when you kind of bring the dream into the, the text, it becomes something more like the way a fairy tale takes a sort of psychological developments and kind of makes a, a myth out of them. Is it in the translating of the dream, in its translation, what 
happens to it is that it does become perhaps more fairy tale like because we've had to make sense of the slightly messier things and to sift through what is an image what can be used what can't be used and in that translation process that's why sometimes perhaps it could come out more fairy tale like that sounds good <laughs> um... <laughs> now we're truly in a gingerbread cottage of our own making thank you for coming on the podcast this has been really wonderful and I recommend listeners to look back at Rachel's poems, which appeared in the summer issue 2020, and to get hold of a copy of My Darling from the Lions. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org dot uk